0: Welcome to the Epsilon Theory Podcast with Dr. Ben Hunt. Please stay tuned for some important disclosures presented at the end of this episode. I'm Michael Correo, Director of Investor Relations and Communications at Salient. And I'm joined today by Dr. Ben Hunt, Chief Investment Strategist, and Rusty Gwynn, EVP of Asset Management at Salient. How are you guys doing? Great.
1: We're doing great, Michael. Glad to be here.
0: So this is the first of a new series of three podcasts. Is that right, Ben?
1: Yeah, you know, it it could be three podcasts, it could be two podcasts, it could be 12 podcasts, honestly, because I I wanted to have Rusty here for this, and and I wanted to make this a distinct series, because he and I have both been writing more about politics recently. Um, I think it's important in our lives as human beings, as citizens, to talk about political markets from an Epsilon theory perspective as much as we talk about capital markets. And uh, I know it's something that Rusty feels very strongly about, as do I. And so it's something that um, uh, we really wanted to do. I, I want to keep it kind of open-ended as far as what the structure is. But yes, I think it's something special. I think it's something special. We've all, we've each written a couple of notes, and we're each going to write a couple of more on this topic to go along with what we're going to be discussing. So... Um, I'm going to introduce at least the two notes of mine that I think bear most directly on what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, and then I'm going to turn it to Rusty and then back to me to to to, to set the stage a bit more. But, uh, you know, I've been writing this, this series called Notes from the Field, which is my effort to try to take lessons <laughs> I've learned as a dilettante farmer up on 40 acres up in the wilds of Fairfield County. The wilds. The wilds, right? You know, where if I have a bad day on the farm, I can go to some local bar and try their artisanal mezcal and uh
2: is the real test is is there anything on your form that could kill you other than machinery
1: other than machinery or yourself absolutely not <laughs> absolutely not no there there's there that I, I passed that test with with, with flying colors or fail that test with flying colors if if you think of it that way but what i've been trying to write about are are aspects of real life that pertain to our lives as investors for sure but also our, our lives as citizens and in particular the the, the two notes i've re- written most recently uh, one was called always go to the funeral uh, and the other was called sheep logic and they're they they both take like i say their start from the farm but i but i think speak directly to I use this word advisedly. The decay of our lives as investors and as citizens, particularly as citizens. Uh, Rusty wrote a similar amazing note. Uh, I, I've retitled it in my own mind as "Make America Good Again." But uh, Rusty, tell us about that that note that you wrote that I thought was so striking.
2: Sure. Well, the the, the piece is called uh, "Before and After the Storm." Uh, although I, I am uh, uh, a little disappointed I didn't go <laughs> with uh, the, the title Ben came up with, maybe five minutes after I yes, sent it to him yes, uh, for the yeah. final version. But much like a lot of the other things that I've written, the the intent there was to take some of what uh, the Ben identifies is, is going on, whether it's in markets or politics, and say, yes, and and what do we do about it? Yeah, because yeah. I, if, if, if I can paraphrase correctly, I mean, the observation from, you know, the two pieces that you've written on the topic is that we are being driven toward a, a competitive game and in some ways, uh, we may be broken as a result of it, as, as whether it's uh, the political dialogue or the ability to have a, a constructive political environment. Uh, and so my attempt in the piece was to kick off a discussion about, okay, so we're being driven toward a competitive game. How, so how, what? Do, how do we get back to being part of a cooperative game? Uh, and it was part one, but I think that's also a little bit of the the discussion that led us to thinking about doing this podcast series.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Rusty. And so let me Kind of start. Let me frame this in that game theoretic sense about what I mean about moving from cooperative games, where I'll say outstanding games are possible, at least possible. You may not get them, right, but but you can at least achieve them in a cooperative game, as opposed to the equilibrium, the rather uh, you know low quality equilibrium that you have to deal with that you are, you are forced into with a competitive game. And so, so let me try to set the stage with that on, that, on, that, on, the, on the game theory side. And then, Rusty, I am going to push it back to you because I, I think that's what you do so well in these notes. is talk about, okay, well, now what? Yeah, what, what? What do we do here? And, and so let me, let me frame it. And what I mean by a, a cooperative game moving, devolving, decaying, into a competitive game is best exemplified with a famous game that Jean-Jacques Rousseau famously popularized back in the, 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 the late 1700s. And it's called the Stag Hunt. Now, I'm going to come back to Rousseau because he was uh, born in Geneva, uh, a, a city that experienced the same sort of decay Frankly, that I, I think we may have in the offing for ourselves. So I, I'm going to come back to this this notion of, of how does this manifest itself in a in a, in a politics like Rousseau's Geneva. Uh, but and I, and I say this because he always referred to himself as a citizen of Geneva. That was his his, his kind of tagline. Uh, but he came up with this idea, and it's, it's very famous in game theory called the stag hunt. And the hunt is not as well-known as games like Chicken or Prisoner's Dilemma, uh, but I think it's, it's as evocative, as powerful for understanding the, the, the world that we live in as either of those other two games. Now, unlike the game of, of Prisoner's Dilemma, which everyone knows, and if you've seen an episode, any police procedural in the last 20 years, you know what a Prisoner's Dilemma is. A Prisoner's Dilemma has one equilibrium, it's where both prisoners rat each other out that is the stable an equilibrium it's a stable end point where neither player has any incentive to deviate or move from that from mm-hmm. that position so in, in the prisoner's dilemma you've got one equilibrium you always end up there both players rat each other out right an, an unhappy outcome but an equilibrium outcome now the game of chicken like the game of stag hunt has two equilibria two balancing points and it's really important to communicate that and in fact that's one of i think the um the frustrations that that many people frankly including myself have with game theory to try to give you a a, an indication of what to do or what's next because when you have a game with two equilibria i can't tell you which of those two equilibria is going to exist Right? it doesn't. It doesn't predict the. Few, it's not predictive in the way that other, um, I'll say, kind of econometric approaches at least try or pretend to be predictive.
2: Or in the way that most people perceive that game theorists would would think about the world, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. That, that exactly right. So unfortunately, when I tell you that a game has multiple equilibria, th- there's nothing in the structure of the game that can tell me well. Which of those two outcomes are we going to have?
2: Yeah. It's sort of an, an emergent property of groups, right? That it, it, it once somebody it's sort of a thresholding effect, right? Where once someone makes a choice, that is the impetus that that drives oh, that's these one
1: equilibrium. that's right? it. So, so game theories are all about understanding or observing the dynamics, the way that it changes. So I, I, I can tell you what direction we're going in. I can tell you what's at the end of the road. Right? But, I, but I can't predict what yeah. might change the dynamics or, or change yeah. the road. And that's why I think a lot of what you've written, Rusty, is so uh, useful to try to get us maybe to change the road we're on. Because here's the road we're on. It's illustrated by the stag hunt. So in the stag hunt, you and any number of other players, you've got to make a decision in the morning. You're going to go out and you're going to go hunt, try to bring back some food for... The, the tribe, the family, whoever you're, you're, you're hunting food for. And if you all go out and you cooperate to bring down a big deer, a stag, you'll all eat very well. And once you go out and all go out and bring down that deer, that's an equilibrium outcome because you're all really well off from hunting the deer. That, that cooperative outcome really works for you. Now, at the same time, though, you could go out and just hunt a rabbit. You could say, ah, man, I don't feel like going out and hunting the stag today. I'm just going to go out and bag me a rabbit. Pepper, right? What, yeah. <laughs> kill the rabbit. And if you decide to go out and kill the rabbit, you are, you are guaranteed to get that rabbit. You're guaranteed to get it. But here's the rub. If even one person goes out to go kill the rabbit, everyone who went out there trying to hunt the deer... Fails. They get nothing. They get zero. You only get a rabbit, but they get zero. So what happens the next day you decide to go out and hunt? Well, the next day, everybody goes and hunts for a rabbit. Yeah. So if everybody goes out and hunts for rabbits, that is also an equilibrium. That is also a stable outcome. So
2: serial games of the stag hunt—do they all does does a sort of serial examination of this game always result in there being one equilibrium at the rabbit, or do you sort of have to view them independently, just from a purely game theoretic perspective?
1: Well, it's, it's a great question. So, so this is kind of set up to be a repeated play game. Yeah, right. That's the the, the whole no, the no, whole notion here. And while there's some evidence that with a you can overcome the dilemma of the prisoner's dilemma. By repeat play of the game, by having a certain strategy mm-hmm. and having a tournament, this was uh, Robert Axelrod's. is different from the, the the Axelrod, who's the yeah. you know, the, the, <laughs> uh, you know, the campaign um, advisor for Obama, but you know he he had a famous book called The Evolution of Cooperation, which was talking about well, maybe you can get out of the dilemma of the prisoner's dilemma by playing this game over and over again. It doesn't work so well yeah. in the stag hunt. Right. Because there's there's there is zero incentive to ever risk going out and hunting for a stag once you're in that equilibria equilibrium mm. of, of of all hunting for rabbits. Because why would you go out there and say, oh, I'm going to get nothing, you know, because you can't trust. It's a problem of trust, as these things always are.
2: Hence, maybe we may be broken, as you wrote.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's And that's the that's the. Uh, power of an equilibrium these things don't fix themselves right once you are that's what it means to be in an equilibria it means there's zero incentive for you to change what you're doing now okay what does all this have to do with with, with actual politics well I, I want you to think back as a i'll call it a trivial example of this to the republican primary that we had mm-hmm. this, this this past election cycle where, if you recall, you know, Ronald Reagan's has his famous 11th commandment, thou shalt not speak ill of fellow Republicans. And so, by and large, that's been the, the that's held true sure. for these, for, for things like debates, where you can, you know, give a few little testy comments, but you don't come out really trying to draw blood for a, a fellow Republican.
2: You might get a stern finger wag from Mitt Romney, but that's, that's right. about it. Yeah. That's
1: right. A stern finger wag would be would be about the extent of it. And then, of course, you have Trump, right? Yeah. Where you know it's the equivalent of, of introducing you know mustard gas to, to, to trench warfare. <laughs> I, I don't care which side introduced it. All sides must adopt it once introduced. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you're getting zero. You're you're coming home with nothing. It's better to come home with a rabbit
2: than sweating like Mark Rubio.
1: That's right. That's That's exactly right. That's right. You you get the Rubio payoff. You get the the Rubio payoff. But more importantly, I think, than than, than that example, and, and this is what I meant in Always Go to the Funeral, about the way that our political dialogue in every domestic respect, I feel, has been transformed into a competitive game. Everyone going out and hunting for a rabbit rather than a cooperative game mm-hmm. of solving big problems and maybe bringing home a deer. Uh, that, that's what I feel like we've seen in the deterioration here. And, and where I'm going with this is, well, why would anyone ever leave that equilibrium of cooperation? Why would anyone ever from the outset break this and choose to go out and give a rabbit, knowing full well, knowing full well that you've just doomed every other stag hunter to getting bupkis. Yeah. Why would you ever do that? You do it because you want to break the status quo. You do it because institutions build up around cooperative outcomes like a stag hunt. Institutions like the Republican Party. Yeah. Institutions like the Democratic Party. So why do you go out and try to undermine those institutions knowing full well that once you go out and hunt a rabbit, everyone's going to have to hunt a rabbit? You do it because you want to break up the power of those institutions, and this is something that political entrepreneurs have done for time immemorial. And and even not break up, uh, you know, you could also just say to
2: to take the power for yourself that that previously was uh, was given to that, that was imbued
1: that power. in that institution. Yeah, right. That, that's that's exactly what happens. And by the end of I will come back because I'll I will tell you this is exactly what happened in Rousseau's Geneva. Yeah, I I think you can say this is exactly what happened in. Uh, you know, Athens, 2,000 years ago. What what happens is you start with a great idea, uh, uh, and, and it is an idea, like our American founders came up with, right? And you build institutions around that, and these institutions are designed for us all to solve problems with some degree of commonality and citizenship so that we bring home the deer for all of us to share. But what has happened throughout history is that a political entrepreneur comes along, starts forcing everyone to hunt for rabbits, diminishes the power of these institutions that build some sort of cooperative outcome. And what happens is you make the long, steady slide from a republic to an oligarchy. Yeah, It's an oligarchy that ends up at the end of this, whether you're talking about the Geneva of the 1700s, whether you're talking about Athens, and... That's my fear for where we're going today. It's
2: like from Mill to Locke to Hobbes, but you know, in in, in, in reverse January. order. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. That's yeah.
1: right. You 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 uh, you throw your lot in with the people who can maintain some order. Yeah. And that tends to be the the, the, the rich guys who can 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 hire the muscle. Yeah. So so that's where I am, and, and that's where I think we are moving in this country, and that's the that's the the game theoretic uh, framework that I have for this. And
2: it seems like there's a lot of rabbits out there. Right. That that we're we're essentially being told, hey, this is this is what we're hunting now. And this is what you're hunting now. Uh, and the, the rapidity with which we've sort of seized on those rabbits versus the stags we were going right. after for the, the last well, 250 years. Well, that's it, Amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing. amazing.
1: It, it's, and this is why I wanted to have this series of podcast and notes, because the the pervasiveness of this deterioration and decay through so many issue areas of our lives as citizens and investors, it's just, it's just so striking. Yeah. So, and in fact, you know, that's what I was writing about in, in Always Go to the Funeral. I mean, one example of this being, you know, Confederate statues. I yeah. know today, you know, we can talk about, you know, the national anthem. Once you start looking for this deterioration, again, you'll see, you'll, you'll, you'll see it everywhere. And, and so th- that's kind of where I wanted to go in th- this initial piece. Now, you've got a good framework for this, though, and I want to give you a chance to introduce your framework that you described in, you know, before and after the storm.
2: Yeah, I, I will, and, and I think it's, as, as we've kind of talked here, you know, I, I, thinking about it in terms of rabbits is useful because the, the rabbit that I, I see popping up again and again is a political dialogue that is driven by symbols, Right. Instead of the substance of a legitimate issue of the the, the people within and citizens within a society might disagree. And that use of symbols is a is a lean meal. Right. It has very little in the way of political import, of civic import, but has just such a tremendous amount of import in terms of what you talked about, which is the ability to shake up the system or to change the system because these things become rallying. Right. And, and,
1: and, And once once one side, either side, like I said, it doesn't matter who introduces the mustard gas in yeah. World War One. Once one side introduces the hunting for rabbits to, to having these uh, a thin gruel of rabbit stew, right on whatever issue we're talking about, then it is irrational for you to pursue the grander vision of hunting ra- of, of hunting a stag, hunting deer. It's
2: it, a it's interesting, but yeah, it's awful. Yeah, and it's, um, you, know, you mentioned World War I, uh, you know, one, the framework that I think is most useful actually comes from a writer whose experiences were shaped by mustard gas in the trenches, um, and this identification, mm-hmm. I think, with the competitive games, and, you know, he writes, and this is, I'm talking, of course, about J.R.R. Tolkien, the British fantasy writer, um, and uh, who also... Uh, certain says that uh, the Lord of the Rings has absolutely no direct allegories to the, the First World War whatsoever. Uh, you know, not Saruman chopping down trees and, and yeah, right. sort of this industrial yeah. complex. The Ruhr like Valley. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. And orcs are not Germans, by the way. Okay. <laughs> but the, the actual the the, and message, the,
1: Eagle, the eagles were the Americans, right? Because I hope so. Yeah, I hope yeah, so. Yeah.
2: But the uh, what, what Tolkien says about this issue. Um, and specifically, I'm talking about that rabbit that is symbols in a mm-hmm. political sense mm-hmm. that, are, that, are, that are used as sort of that drive to the, to the, to the uh, competitive game. He says about allegory um, more generally that, that he, he hated it, right? Because the, the idea of allegory, which is, let's say, the most common form of, of literary symbol, right, is that it, it is the purpose domination Of the reader by the author
1: oh i love that right
2: that's great the author is is has an idea in mind for some symbol that he wants you to you know recognize thou
1: shalt understand my story in this way
2: exactly exactly that and and of course despite the fact that there are a lot of these things seem very obviously to be things from history let's do as he said and not as he did and recognize this is something that he disdained right even he and his uh, close friend c.s lewis uh, had some disagreements on this Tolkien very famously uh, hated the Chronicles of Narnia because well, Aslan was, it was, uh, Jesus. was yeah. Jesus in a yeah. very, very literal yeah. and explicit way. Uh, and he didn't didn't particularly like that. What Tolkien preferred was applicability, was this idea that when someone is writing, and, and I think that you can expand this to our political conversations, our communications, whether we're talking to friends, family, and political speech, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Whenever you're writing and you allow that symbol to be what ever the person whose judgments and experiences lead them to believe uh, it may mean, then you have given them applicability and you've allowed them, you've enriched the way they think about a particular topic. And so Tolkien favored applicability as a standard for how do we use symbols as a society. And what I've sort of observed as sort of the framework for thinking about the helpful versus potentially harmful symbols in the way they're Mm -hmm, importing things mm -hmm. is these allegories that... You know, it's sort of this vague notion of they. um, uh, And and in certain cases, it's very clear individuals, right, are using uh, as this sort of divisive force. And so, you know, when there's, and it manifests in a couple of ways, right? So sometimes people will say, this is what a Blank believes. This is what a Republican believes. This is what Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. person who loves liberty or freedom or um, who loves, uh, you know, women or, you know, people of color. This is what that person will believe. Right. And in certain cases, simply stating that and creating that
1: symbol changes the way people think about things. Well, this is the common knowledge game. This is, this is a a missionary, right? Yeah. a politician or a famous celebrity, when they make that sort of statement, right? This is what group X believes or should believe, right? That changes it. And again, this is a very rational process, yeah. right? It changes the way you ascribe meaning to that symbol.
2: And that's right. And you, can, you, know, you gave the example of Confederate statues as maybe one of the first places we'll talk about this. But you can absolutely see that on both sides there. As soon as it became an allegory as a symbol, right? The it was the first time that anyone, frankly, on either side of this issue, had thought about it in in any really substantive
1: sense for for the better part of a century. Oh, a- a- absolutely. And so I, I wanna I wanna play this out a bit more because it, it strikes me that what you're describing as an allegory, right? This what do you call the, the the purpose domination of the reader. Yeah. Right. This. You know, I write a lot in Epsilon Theory about narratives, right? So, so, so allegories are, are a particular form of narrative, right? They're, they're like kind of the fables and legends, some of the old stories that I talk about. Some of them. Because it, it strikes me that you've got some fables and myths that are about creation, right? How things came to be. And those aren't so much allegories, right? But you have a lot of fables and myths and stories that are, that are written, that are told, to say this is how one ought to behave, yeah. How 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 one ought to think about the world. Then once you introduce that word of of ought, yeah. Right now you're talking about again the domination of, of 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 the reader, and there are lots of stories and narratives and myths about that. But what you know what I've always found most most fascinating, and this absolutely applies to the notion of the Confederate statues, is that you can have two allegories yeah two stories but they with with very different visions of ought yes of be of proper behavior but they'll use the same symbol oh yes yeah so so this is what i wrote about in in sheep logic right the the kind of underlying idea here was look you're you're often described as a sheep in the new testament right but you know the apostles and Jesus and those—they're not insulting you when they call you a sheep, right? It's—they're but but they're—they're right. they're using that symbolism of the sheep and the shepherd in a very different way than if somebody calls you a sheep today, um, because they are insulting you, right? If 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 you're called a sheep today, and and so it's 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 you can construct these symbols, it's the same symbol. Right, the same word, the same notion, but has very different meanings, and I think that's what you're talking about, right? When you're talking about how we're being forced into these conflicts, not over the the underlying issue, but over the symbol itself. Well, and
2: it's, it even goes further than that, because it, in addition to them, you know, using these symbols to to change the way that people think about things, I think they that, and this one is a little bit more subtle. They also use it to stand in for a, what a person they are debating or discussing the issue with must think right? right and so it becomes and i think you described these these two mechanics as both obedience collar and and dog, dog whistle, whistle right? right the dog whistle is the first right it's this conform people to a particular belief uh, or that's the the uh, you know, the obedience collar, really. Yeah. Uh, and then the 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 dog, the dog whistle is to get is, the other side. Yes, it's it's the you know if you support the Confederate statues, well, you, you you must be a white supremacist if you if you really can't see it that way. Or if you support tearing down the, the statues, you must you know be a you know PC police um, history FIFA, hitter uh, sympathizer. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and so the dialogue becomes, and this gets back to what is the rabbit? The rabbit is the fact that we're all sitting here so mad, not about the issue, but about how everyone else is responding to the issue in sort of classic Epsilon Theory fashion. And when you get down to the heart of it, the reason that everyone is so mad about that is because we're being forced allegories, but each of these issues has different applicability for each
1: of us. Well, you're right, Rusty, and I wrote a note about this called Always Go to the Funeral, where I was, I didn't use the same sort of words that you use, the words of allegory and applicability. But let me try to apply those words here. The Confederate statues and memorials and plaques had very little applicability to me. I, 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 didn't, I didn't see them and, and say, oh, well, that, that has some sort of meaning for my life. Maybe I'm just not woke enough. But 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 they, they they didn't they they just didn't and, and and listen to to the extent that they had any sort of bearing on me meaning for me any sort of applicability to me it was it was a negative connotation because my understanding then and now is that so many of these statues and plaques were put up during a Jim Crow era the early twentieth century where the 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 allegory the the intention behind them was to remind African Americans that uh, you used to be slaves. Now, look, I, I I realize there there are a lot of people in the South, uh, particularly African Americans, to whom there is significant applicability to those statues. I, I I I wouldn't think anything otherwise. But I also think that for incumbent politicians, African American or white. Democratic, or Republican, of whatever stripe, any incumbent politician in the South, these memorials, whatever you want to call them, these Confederate statues, had low applicability. And and, and I say that because while we have certainly seen significant political action in the South around other symbols, particularly the flag, the fact is that any political action around these Confederate statues and memorials was I'll describe it as muted. And that includes predominantly African American, um, particularly metropolitan area cities in the South where a lot of these statues and memorials exist. It's not to say that there wasn't applicability or that or that it wasn't an issue, but I think the fact of the matter is is it was not a uh, a strong political issue and this gets back to to what i was saying earlier in the 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 podcast about a devolution that's happened in a society toward that it's always been sparked by political entrepreneurs because i think what's happened here around the confederate statues is that we have had political entrepreneurs on both the right and the left seize upon this issue in order to intentionally Create uh, create a a wedge and a divisiveness that didn't exist before, but now must be adopted. It's the 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 use of allegory, Rusty, as 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 you're describing it, and that's what I tried to 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 discuss in the in 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 the article that I wrote the always go to to the funeral, and this 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 allegory the way it the way it works is that if you're a political entrepreneur on the right a Steve Bannon type let's say you go out there and you say oh let me give you let me give you the right allegory the right meaning the right symbolism for these statues the right symbolism is that they these radical leftists the antifa's of the world that they are coming to steal your history they're coming to rewrite history they're coming to take this away, that they're going to put on their black balaclava, I don't even know how to pronounce that, the, the, the black mask, and they're going to be, you know, waving their, their fists up in the air, um, you know, on top of some toppled statue of Robert E. Lee. And that, that message resonates. It really does. Because you don't want the bad guys to win. And it works on the flip side, of course, as well, that for a political entrepreneur on the left, you say, hey, you know what? If you are not actively engaged in tearing down the statues, you are no better than the tiki, torch-wielding idiots, Nazis, et cetera. You are a racist if you don't actively support the tearing down of the statues. And both of those allegories associated with the same symbol, they're very powerful, they're intentionally so, and it makes it then impossible for those incumbent political leaders of either stripe to stay on the sidelines. That's what I was writing about in Always Go to the Funeral. And that's what I mean about this devolution of a process and a game that is a a, a cooperative era area, to, to, to resolve these things and have it devolve into all of us hunting rabbits and, and not even be able to have a dialogue or a process for, I'll say, adjudicating this. Because the, the, the adjudication has to rely on, on I think, this, this notion of applicability, that, that everyone's applicability is not equal. Uh, and so, while it didn't have much much meaning or applicability to me, I I, I recognize it did for others. I suspect it did for, for you as well, Rusty. And I, I think you've got a story to tell on this. So I'd I'd like to hear it.
2: Yeah. Well, and and it's it's complicated. Right? which is the way i think it is with with a lot of people yeah. right and yeah. it, because most of these issues are complicated which is why it's such a problem uh when when they're simplified into you know these these de- this divisive language so in my case uh and and I, those of you who uh i think the the first podcast that ben and mm-hmm. i did it was a uh, something con- country uh I and mean, it's something about country language or, or southern charm or something like that but you know, ben and i both shared you know we actually come from a, a similar part of the country uh, you know, he and I are both uh, sons of Alabama and southern uh, South Central Tennessee. Um, you know, my uh, fourth great grandfather was the you know the, the the first Gwyn that I can uh, you know really identify and came into uh, Southern Tennessee and, and Northern Alabama in uh, the in 1795, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, his son when he was 16 was when the Civil War broke out. This is my third great grandfather, James Knox Gwynn. Um, you know, with the other 16 and 17 year olds from the, the local community, as soon as, uh, Tennessee, which was the last state to secede, last one, yep. they'd actually voted against it several times, uh, until, uh, Lincoln declared martial law and, and ultimately, you know, wards, you know, struck elsewhere. And so then it was an overwhelming vote in favor of secession. They secede and, you know, they, they all run off to, uh, to join the army. And, you know, he, uh, he fought for, for the, the, the course of the entire war, um, and, uh, you know, had his, uh, was uh, partially blind for the rest of his life in the Battle of Chickamauga, which was actually the, uh, the second bloodiest, bloodiest second yeah. bloodiest battle after Gettysburg uh, in the Civil War, um, and there's just great stories uh, of uh, you know what really would have been sort of manly deeds of heroism even when you kind of look at it in a in a full spectrum of history and say well, fighting for the wrong side, right? And so there's aspects of that you know a 16 year old who says I'm gonna fight you know for my neighbors and um, I'm gonna be brave. Be brave in the face of cannon fire and 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 uh, rifle fire and, and all these other things. There's something in that that I that I you know, I mm-hmm. really do take a little bit of pride in. The reality, though, is that the most of the emotions I feel when I see that are, are shame because so? so, you know, when you when you make the decision or mistake of going into genealogy, you're going to find what you're going to find. Yeah. So there's a couple of decades there where conveniently the the census records are all burned in fires but the slave records weren't. Oh, wow. And so, you know, in the case of my family, you know, this is a, he was the son of a Methodist minister who owned 20 human beings. A preacher. A preacher. A preacher who owned 20 people, um, right? And you can talk yourself into believing the lies about the benevolent slave master, right? That that such a thing could possibly exist. And it doesn't. It doesn't. And so I look at that and say, well, that was, you know, only if, few generations ago, you know, the people whose blood runs in my veins were, you know, enslaving and using other people for labor for their entire lives. You know, and you can actually look up the family, you know, the history of these families that came out once they became freedmen and carved out fantastic histories for themselves. And so, you know, I think on my, you know, third great grandfather who died, you know, a few years after the Civil War, you know, left, you know, six kids and a wife to, you know, run penniless to Texas. And, you know they built up a, a family that became my family, and I take a little bit of pride in that. and I take a lot more shame from you know some of the things that my family did. I mean,' there's, the the cruelty and horror of it, you know, kind of chills me. So when I see the statues, it has some complex meaning and and some of them, like you said, though the ones that were installed in you know, the 1900s, the little plaques that were really meant to be remind, right. um, you know, frankly, to remind blacks that they used to be owned in a sort of classically Jim Crow racist way, Those don't really have much value, but to me, you know, the monuments in, in cemeteries, um, you know, the, the monuments to the, the, to the Confederate soldier that are honest, you know, I appreciate those. But what I, the bigger point here is yeah. that I have a small level of applicability here because from from my vantage point, you know, there's, you know, 30, 40, you know, 50, 60 million black people in America for whom that applicability is even stronger much right and, and 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 it's and, and and this is just my opinion is is much more deserving of, of being heard and both of these perspectives they don't you don't have to weigh them the same because they're not worth weighing the same but they have to be part of a civic dialogue that's not happening because we're being diverted to these symbols and that's that's where I get really frustrated and really feel like um, it, it we've got to break free of the of this competitive game dynamic
1: well, that's a really powerful story, Rusty. And, and, I, and I think that, and this will get to where I want to go with this series, which is okay, so what do we do about that, right? So we, we're being forced into a situation by political entrepreneurs that requires us in a very rational way to imbue more or different meaning to these symbols than we had before, and mm-hmm. and and to, to your point here, eliminates any possibility of having an actual, I'll say, dialogue, right, where where one can can listen to people whose meaning associated with these symbols is different from yours. Right, that, that's what we've lost here. There, there, there's no, there are no institutions. There's, there's no process by which to even listen, or, you know, much less try to to accept or 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 evaluate the other side, because you're now painted in a, an environment where you have to be hunting for rabbits. Yeah, right? and
2: and and you know, I think that what you realize as you start to think about what it is that we could possibly do is that the it's not a passive intent that drives us here right it is a very active decision there are people who want there to be no debate correct they want those symbols to persist and they are on both sides of the aisle yep the issue of the confederate statues is a winner for the gop it is an absolute winner the issue of the statues is an absolute winner for california democrats It's a winner of an issue, and if it never goes away, if nothing is ever solved on the issue, those people will be jumping for joy.
1: Well, and this is what Steve Bannon said. You know, the I think it was American Prospect had this this interview as he was leaving the White House, right? Where his point was, you know, my dream, my dream is that this issue of Confederate statues and the like is championed by the Democrats because it's going to win us the White House again in the 2020 cycle. Right? And, and, and to your point, there there are other geographies. California is a great one, right? Where it's it's absolutely a winner for the Democratic Party in, in California and some other states as well to continue to bring this up. It is. So what do we do? So what well, do we do, Rusty? Because I, I mean, again, once you start seeing these these examples of where we've been uh, forced in in a, in a very rational, time <laughs> honored tradition, right? And once you start looking for these, you see them everywhere. We haven't talked about the anthem and the, the NFL, except you know tangentially with yeah. you know Jerry Jones and the Cowboys, but but there's another one, right? Where where here's the thing that that that, that amazes me, and it's absolutely the same thing with Confederate statues. No one's talking about the underlying issues. Of well, what meaning should one or do people different associate with race in America? Right? No one talks anymore about Colin Kaepernick in the in the very real issue of of police violence, right? I don't like Colin Kaepernick. I don't think you did particularly do either. I mean I mean a lot of the, the the stuff he did, right, really rubs me the wrong way. Absolutely. Right? It doesn't make him wrong. But it doesn't make him wrong. No. It doesn't <laughs> make him wrong. And, and, but 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 now we don't even talk about the underlying issue. Well, and, and that's – you get back to it because if the
2: intent of something is to create awareness and, – and, and, and this is kind of meandering over to the anthem right. issue from, from yeah. the, the statues, right? If the issue of something, a protest, is to create awareness, then when you've reached a point where discussion of that topic has trumped hurricanes, mass shootings – you know, the prospect of nuclear war with a madman in North Korea, you know, all of the other things that are going on in the world. We're covering this protest more than any of those. And it's been the case for a month. Yeah. We are aware. So at what point does that dialogue that we all wanted to have start? Then it doesn't. It doesn't start. It doesn't, it doesn't start. Is the equilibrium. Be- because no one wants it to start. No None one of the wants it main start. actors. Now, those of us who are thinking about, and, and I think most of those people if you looked at their applicabilities as opposed to the allegory, allegory that's been created for them, they really do, in their heart of hearts, want that. Right? Like Michael Bennett, the uh, defensive end for the Seahawks, who's very outspoken. I know, in his heart of hearts, he wants this. He was personally affected by, um, you know, a, an incident with police in Las Vegas. Right? Yeah. These yeah. are things that that I think a lot of them really want something about. But because it's been, they've been forced into this place of the allegory. We're going to it's it is an equilibrium. And so to your question, what do we do about it? Well, I talked about it in we'll call it Make America Good Again because yeah. I, I do like that title more. We lose.
1: OK, we hang lose. on. What do you mean we lose? I know.
2: <laughs> it's a very un-American concept. That's sure something you'd yeah. expect
1: from a Texan. Look,
2: the, the problem with the game and the, the, the problem with these symbols is that everything is now existential. Mm-hmm. If we do not do this, then history will be erased. If we do not do this. The terrorists win. Then the, the terrorists win or the, the, the last 50 years progress on civil rights will be erased in one fell swoop. Right. Everything becomes existential. And it's practical, too, because a lot of people may be pointing to those things and saying, well, I don't think about those. Well, how many people voted for Donald Trump because Supreme Court? A lot. A lot. I know a lot. And a lot of people who are sort of libertarian-minded like I am, who said, "It's I just can't, I cannot live in an America where the me court too. has five out of nine on, on the lean left.
1: And well, so to lose well, me. Wait, wait, you yeah. said me too. So, so where I was going with me too yeah. was, to me, there are things that are more important than a Supreme, you know, maintaining I'll call it a, a certain majority on the Supreme Court. Right. I'm willing to lose that. But a lot, but, but to your point, most people weren't. N- they weren't. And and they're
2: not willing to lose on these other issues that's because it. that's it, right? They're being positioned as existential because existential crises are what allow the parties to stay in power, to generate fundraising dollars, to really centralize and galvanize the base. And so what do we have to do? We have to create a pack of people who are willing to lose people who are willing to say, this is not existential. I am willing to step away from that allegory, that symbol, that sort of monolith for the people who maybe have the highest correlation to whatever I am and say, I'm going to be intellectually honest. I'm going to look at every individual issue on its merits. And I'm going to consider the other people that I talk to citizens and not ascribe to them beliefs or identities which they haven't in their own
1: um you know minds it's really hard, taken for
2: themselves it? it's very hard it's really hard it's, it's this stuff I, makes me mad too
1: yeah yeah so so what you mean by we have to be willing to lose is uh, i'll use i'll go back to the confederate statues right that on one side right that losing would mean seeing the statue torn down and you know black mask antifa People raising their hands and, you know, photographs of that, of their jubilation at this and be willing just to swallow that. On the other hand, being prepared to lose would mean letting kind of tiki torch assholes, you know, parade around and, and act as if they had saved some, 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 some statue like that, right? That, that's what losing means
2: in a sense boy that's hard it's hard it's hard it, you, you almost think about it, it you watch game of thrones right sure, you know i guess in the the second or third to last episode when uh, sam sam tarley is in uh in the maester citadel and he's you know presenting to the maesters on why they need to respond to the wall this existent now in this case it was a real existential crisis yeah yeah, yeah but yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the response of the maesters was look this happened and everyone said oh you need to intervene but The wall was still there and the world survived. You need an interview here and the world survived. And so I think there is a message there. And people are going to hate this podcast so much, Ben, because it it, it does run contrary to what we've been taught, which is to fight for your beliefs. But the reality is to act boldly on them, but but hold loosely. And if there needs to be a critical mass and there is a thresholding effect to this, because like you say, if, if everyone else is playing a competitive game and we elect this strategy, we are. Going to lose well, until enough of us choose to do well, it.
1: Well, well, let me give some encouragement to this view because the, the, the in and this gets back to your question about well, how does one get out of the, the bad equilibrium of we're all just hunting rabbits and we're all focused on the symbology here as opposed to the the the, the actual events. One way you can kind of see a change in in game playing behavior is if you express to the players that or encourage the players to take a long view right to play the long game the meta game right that that by uh, losing on some of these issues if you can see that you are creating the framework for a a, a pack right so you can get back to hunting the big stags yeah. that can work but it's really hard and 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 I and I think though the way to do it and we use this quite this guy it's You've heard that, well. This quote's been around for for a long time, but I did some research on it. It comes out for this guy named uh, Andrew Fletcher, who uh, lived in the you know, late 1600s. He was a, a Scottish patriot, right? So he was opposed to the Unification Act and, and with with Scotland and and, and uh, in England.
2: As all good Scotsmen should have been. As
1: all good Scotsmen should have been. It, it, but but he has this famous quote, which is that, "Let me make the songs of a nation." And I care not who makes its laws. And, and I think about that a lot when I'm thinking about how does one build a civil society? How do you work from below to create a movement that can actually tolerate I'll call it losing, right? Where, you know, oh, I didn't get the majority I wanted on the Supreme Court. Or, oh, this law that I think is is, is horrible and is unfair is, is, is being passed. I go back to thinking of this guy. Is it, is it let me make the songs of a nation and I don't care who makes its laws.
2: Are you suggesting
1: withdrawal, withdrawal from the political sphere? Partially. Right. It's kind of this August, Augustine, Augustinian uh, idea of, 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 of kind of withdrawing from now the, careful. Cause the you world. know, I'm
2: on a, on a, on a, aren't uh, uh, Yeah, kick you're, here. Yeah. You're, so on, you're on a
1: kick here, right? <laughs> yeah, I. I th- there is an element of, of, I'll say withdrawing from the surface fight, not trying to change things from above, but trying to change things from below. That actually creating the stories, the the, the the civil society that we live in and that we we are immersed in at a at a local level is is more important than who makes the laws.
2: Yeah, and, and look, I mean I look I couldn't agree more, although as I said, I, I think a certain amount of political engagement is is sort of a necessary part of whether it is Rousseau's social contract uh, or you know th- th- through sort of an, an, you know, a later way of thinking about things like Hannah Arendt or or some of the other thinkers like that. But you know I, I do think that there is value, and we did this on the investment side, and and you know we we've almost wrapped up writing about you know the the investor's code as in the way that we yeah. think about it. How does an investor who hears what we talk about on epsilon theory approach? entire investment in portfolio construction exercise. I think there's a similar exercise for us as political beings and, and people as part of this environment. And, and I think it's about dis- defining the code of the citizen again and re-examining this question That's that it. Jefferson and everyone That's else it. wanted to Because to
1: political participation should not be limited to every two years or four years going into a booth and pulling a little knobs.
2: And putting a bumper sticker or, uh, you know, a uh, lawn yard sign in our yard to, to virtue signal.
1: That's right. That's right. Or your furious, you know, tweets. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at myself on so that. So that sounds like something we could talk about. That is something we'll talk about. So so stay tuned. This was a, a good start, Rusty. Thanks for uh, going on this journey with me. Thanks, Ben.
0: Thanks, guys. And stay tuned for the next episode in this series. Bye. Oh. This commentary is being provided to you by individual personnel of Salient Partners LP and affiliates, and is provided as general information only and should not be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the author and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. It is not investment research or research recommendation, as it does not constitute substantive research or analysis. Any action that you take as a result of information contained in this podcast is ultimately your responsibility. Salient will not accept liability for any loss or damage, including without limitation to any loss of profit, which may arise directly or indirectly from use of or reliance on such information. Consult your investment advisor before making any investment decisions. It must be noted that no one can accurately predict the future of the market with certainty or guarantee future investment performance. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Salient is not responsible for any third-party content that may be accessed through this website. The distribution or photocopying of salient information contained on or downloaded from this site is strictly prohibited without the express written consent of salient. Statements in this podcast are forward-looking statements. The forward-looking statements and other views expressed herein are as of the date of this publication. Actual future results or occurrences may differ significantly from those anticipated in any forward-looking statements, and there is no guarantee that any predictions will come to pass. The views expressed herein are subject to change at any time due to numerous market and other factors. Salient disclaims any obligation to update publicly or revise any forward-looking statements or views expressed herein. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum or other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Salient commentary has been prepared without regard to the individual financial circumstances and objectives of persons who receive it. Salient recommends that investors independently evaluate particular investments and strategies and encourage investors to seek the advice of a financial advisor. The appropriateness of a particular investment or strategy will depend on an investor's individual circumstances and objectives.